0: Please be seated. Sermon text this morning is from Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that it would do its work, that we would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, be led into truth, and that we uh, would, would believe the truth you lead us to, Father. And that it would not just be head knowledge, but we would be encouraged in our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ to live for him and his kingdom and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think everyone at some point in time gets to a place in life of a very specific kind of frustration. And this is a place where the challenges of life, the constant cycle of work and struggle make a person doubt that it's all worthwhile. Um, And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you know, just wait a little bit and you'll probably experience this, right? And feeling this type of frustration is part of the human experience. It's actually an integral part of being a creature who's made in God's image, who is living in a world stained by sin and that's in bondage. In fact, this is why Paul writes in Romans 8 that the whole creation has been groaning and that we groan inwardly. This audible sigh is a physical manifestation of the frustration that we're supposed to feel living in a world that's subjected to sin and death. And this frustration, in many ways, is what the entire book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Uh, it's, it's, it's this entire book is feeling that groaning and trying to make sense of it. And so, as we think about Ecclesiastes, we have to kind of consider it a little bit as a whole before we dig into the specifics of it. I'd like us to even think about the title, Ecclesiastes. It's actually the Greek title. It means member of an assembly. And it's a word used in the New Testament to describe Christians, believe it or not. However, it's kind of a poor title for this book, because um, the word in the Hebrew is Koheleth, which if you have a footnote in Ecclesiastes at the bottom there, probably tells you that in your, in your Bible. And this Koheleth, this Hebrew word, it describes a person that's in a role that's not religious in nature. It's more of an assembler, a convener. It's more of a somebody who's presenting, but not necessarily with any kind of religious authority. And so as we're thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes and what it means, we have to picture that it's really a man giving a presentation, this entire book. It's this Kohelet, this preacher, this assembler, and it's likely Solomon uh, giving a speech to a gathered group of nobility on this topic of frustration, on this topic of that groaning. Th- Ecclesiastes, in many ways, is an ancient Near East version of a TED talk. That's, that's essentially what it is. In the Koholeth, the preacher, he begins a speech before this assembly with the famous declaration we find in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Famous words. Even people who don't believe in the scriptures have probably heard those ones. Some of your translations, depending on which English version you're reading, you might actually have the word uh, meaningless listed instead of vanity. We may have heard that before, maybe growing up. Um, and, and how we interpret that particular word, vanity or meaningless, I'm here to tell you it's actually the single most important thing we can determine this morning. Is We're going to consider Solomon's, this preacher's wrestling with this frustration, the beginning of this TED Talk. If we don't understand what he's meaning by vanity of vanities, we're going to miss the wisdom that God has for us today. And this word vanity is actually a Hebrew word meaning habel. It's what it actually is in the Hebrew And the literal meaning of this word is breath. It's an onomatopoeia for those of you who are, you know, so so inclined. And out of the 78 times that this word habel is used in the Old Testament, only three times is it literal, only three. The rest of the times it's used metaphorically to describe the insubstantiality of a false religion or a false god. See, because breath, well, it's weightless, right? It's here and then it's gone, just like that. And, And that's what it's trying to convey, a false god to the Israelites is like breath because it has no substance to it. It's not real. It's just this thing. That's what breath means, and that's how it's used. And I have to be a little careful here because I have a you know, mic right by my face. But if I say the Hebrew word habel the way it's supposed to be said, habel, you know, with that kind of guttural there, does it sound like any other name in the Old Testament? And I don't want to do it too strongly because it'll sound weird in the mic. But it's the name Abel, as in Cain and Abel. And yes, Adam and Eve, they named their son Breath. You know, so if you're thinking of names, if you have, you know, anybody who's considering names for a child, you could put that one on the list, Breath. Don't really do that, okay? (laughs) Why was he named that? Well, Abel may have been named Habel because his life was cut short. That could be it. But it certainly wasn't because he was meaningless or that his life was vain or insignificant. In fact, if, if we go and look at Hebrews, he's listed in the Hall of Faith. He said there that he is a righteous sufferer and an example to us of true faith. So Abel wasn't a meaningless person, but his life was like a breath, here and then gone. So all all this to say that the word habel, which is the most important and significant word in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's used as a metaphor for temporary, for something that's here and then gone. If you'll let me digress from the sermon just for a minute, we'll do a, a quick Christian history minute, okay? So here's the sermon. We'll, we'll actually set it right here, okay? And we're just going to do a quick Christian history minute because we've got to get this right. I think it's fascinating, but it actually bolsters, I think, the meaning of this sermon and, and what we'll get from it. So uh, vanity, or the word meaningless, they're inadequate translations of the word we find in Ecclesiastes 1, but they have been used and accepted really until about the middle 20th century because of the Latin Vulgate. Again, this is kind of, you know, nerdy church history here. The the Latin Vulgate was a 4th century translation of the Bible from the Greek and the Hebrew into the the Latin, which was the vulgar or the common language of the day. And Jerome, the man who wrote uh, this translation, when he came to Ecclesiastes 1, he's reading the Hebrew, he sees Habel, and he says, you know what, we're going to write down vanitas in Latin. And that's what he wrote down. And he chose the word for hobel in the Latin that pertains to value rather than transience. So he went with the value side of things rather than transience. And that has big hermeneutical implications. In other words, the way we interpret scripture and we get meaning from it, it's really, really big. And that's why I even pause to have this this little Christian history moment. And so from the 4th century until the time of the Reformation, people didn't read the Hebrew or the Greek. They just read the Latin. That was it. Um, The Hebrew text was considered unnecessary. And this obscure word, habel, in a difficult Old Testament book that wasn't really read, was never really reconsidered until about the last 100 years. So back to the sermon. Let's pull it back over here, okay? With this in mind, we actually get to the main point of Ecclesiastes and what we're going to look at this morning. The main point of verse 2. Here's my translation of it. Breath of breaths literal everything is temporary that's what he's saying he's starting off his ted talk by saying here's something i noticed breath of breaths everything is here a minute and gone the next this is a man who's lived in the world for a while this is a man who's seen that he's built things and they've crumbled he's lived life and he's seen life go away everything is temporary he's not saying that everything was without purpose He's not saying that everything is vain. He's saying nothing lasts. And that's the first point of my sermon. Everything is temporary. In fact, that's actually the only point of the sermon. So you're off the hook on the notes a little bit. It took a while to get there, I know. You've been very patient with me. All of life is transient. Everything is temporary. Uh, We actually live in Seacliff. It's a little village up near Glen Cove. And we have a very, in our very tiny little one-by-one-square-mile village, there's about 20 homes on the National Historic Register of Historic Places. And they're all mostly uh, Victorian mansions. There's, you know, built in the late 1800s. And, um, you know, there's painted ladies and all sorts of fancy things I don't really know about. But I love looking at them because I realize how much skill and time and money went into building these giant homes, you know, uh, 140 years ago that are still there, they're still around, people are living in them, and they're just as beautiful now and impressive as they were when they were built. But there's this one house that stands out to me going near downtown, and it stands out to me because it's absolutely falling apart. And you can look at it, and you can see this thing used to be a thing of grandeur and beauty and awe. And now, you know, despite its former grandeur, it's on the verge of being nothing more than a pile of rotting lumber paints peeling, you know, the the tiles falling off the roof. At one time, somebody spent a lot of money and a lot of effort and hired a lot of skilled workers to build this house, and yet now it's hardly anything worth looking at. It's a visible monument to Solomon's observation here that everything is temporary, here one day and gone the next. And I wonder if you've ever felt that truth. Like all we do is a sandcastle on the beach. We build it, we build it, and the tide comes, and it's gone. Well, the preacher feels this. And this is why in verse 3 he asks the question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's the point? He's feeling that tension. No matter how great we build or how much work we do, do we really gain anything? And that's the title of the sermon, What's the Point? Again, not to get dark, But this is a serious question that people, uh, even in Solomon's time, were wrestling with. And from verse 4 through 11, we get beautiful poetry illustrating the precept of transience. He describes the pattern of human existence. Just like each breath is a stage in a continuous cycle of breathing, so too is every human generation that comes and goes. The sun rising, the wind blowing, a stream running to the sea, These are all continual things that have no permanence because they're never complete. Solomon's looking around the world, and it's not just the stuff we build. He sees the entire creation in this continual cycle that seems to have no end. Do you feel that frustration? You're supposed to. Chapter 1 of uh, Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1 does not provide obvious answers to the hard question raised. We can certainly identify with the question, what's in it for me? You know, why should I work so hard? What's the return? What's the point? And this question is natural because, what's natural? Because the fall isn't natural. We're created for labor, but not for laborious labor, according to Genesis. So why sacrifice ourselves so willingly against the effects of the fall, the thorns and the thistles that afflict our labor? You know, when we work, it's hard. It doesn't come easy. We don't till the ground, most of us, like Adam does, or Adam did but there's still thorns and thistles that get in our way and we have to work against. You know, cleaning up the house before a company comes over. You know, what's the point? It's just going to get dirty, right? You can vacuum and vacuum and you clean, and people come over and they get it dirty. It's kind of a funny thing we do. How about this one, right? You, uh, you mow the lawn, you pick the weeds out, try to get your tomatoes going. Yeah, but the weeds all grow back, right? They're there. Bugs come and eat things. Making a great, heath- a healthy tasty meal for your family and your kids. What's the point? They're not going to eat it anyway. They're just going to come and get some snacks in an hour, right? You guys feel these things. You've done these things. You've lived some life. You have been in a situation like this where you're like, I'm doing this work over and over and over and yet I never seem to make any progress. It's the same thing. That's, that's what you're supposed to feel. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Yeah, people who think the Bible's not relevant haven't read this book. I mean, that's, this is something that everybody should feel. It's the, it's the focus of this, as I said, of the entire book and the topic of his speech before the crowd. I find it interesting that in Psalm 144, David also asks this question in a slightly different way. Again, I believe Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon, and David is his father who also possessed great wisdom. In, in Psalm 144, uh, David writes this, Lord, what are human beings that you care for them? mere mortals that you think of them, they are like a breath, and their days are like a fleeting shadow. David uses that same word, habel, to describe us and our life. We're like a breath. Lord, what are you that you are mindful of us? We're nothing. We're vapor. We're here today and gone tomorrow. He's, ma- he's marveling that the God of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, cares for us, even though we are this breath. And perhaps because questions like this can easily turn dark and rather existentially depressing, I find Ecclesiastes is avoided. People don't really preach a lot of sermons on this one or write a lot of books. In fact, one of the commentators I read said that it is the most avoided theology in the entire church. It's skirted like the plague. Well, the plague has come to your pulpit this morning. So, It's the Word of God, though. It's here and given for our benefit and our instruction. And so while it is a one-point sermon, I I don't want to just leave us with a dark thought. And that's why people avoid it, by the way. I think they avoid it because they wrestle with this idea that everything is meaningless. Again, the wrong translation of the the verse. And they go, how can I preach that everything's meaningless? It doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the word of God. But if we wrestle with the idea that nothing lasts, I think we can make something with that. And so I want to give us three practical kind of application points. A one-point sermon with three ways to apply it. Um, three ways that when we leave here, we don't just think of our lives as insignificant, meaningless sandcastles on the beach. So here's the first point. Our best life is not now. Our best life is not now. Contrary to what the popular book writer thinks, and if you don't know who I'm referencing, I'm not going to say his name all the better to you. Um, Contrary to what he says, though, our best life is yet to come. We do live in a world and in a culture where our best earthly efforts and labor are not going to last. So this can't be our best life. This can't be it. I think of 2 Corinthians 4, where the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul's honing in on the idea of temporary again. What we see in this world around us is temporary, but there is an eternal realm. There is an eternal reality, but we can't see it with our eyes. This is why Jesus told us, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, not to store up treasures for ourselves on this earth. That was one of Jesus' main teaching there. Because our treasures one day will be gone, and so too will even this world. The prophet Isaiah dramatically tells us that God will wipe the stars away, and he's going to roll up the sky like a scroll, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. This is why we're taught to fix our eyes on what is unseen, on what is eternal. It's it's kind of a rather strange command if you think about it for a moment, though. Try to fix your eyes on something you can't see, right? Like, uh, how do I do that? If I say, fix your eyes on my finger, you can do that. Everybody looks, and you're like, there it is, and you can track where it goes. But fix your eyes on something eternal, something unseen, something worthy. Yeah, that's what Paul tells us. Well, I think to do that, he's telling us to make this eternal reality our chief concern, even though we know it's not made up of the physical world and we can't see it with our eyes, we make it our priority. We live under the reality that it exists and that it is coming and it is the permanent, non-temporary reality that will make up our entire existence. You see, the things that we can see now have limited value in their toil. They're not worth giving our heart and affections to fully, making them our treasure because they have no lasting eternal value. That's the point. Never, ever lose sight that as a Christian, as one redeemed by the blood of Jesus, our best life is yet to come. So that's point one. Here's point two, okay? Point two. Enjoy what God gives you. Enjoy what God gives you. In verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 1, the preacher, he laments that there is no remembrance of anything. You could tell it weighs heavy on him. One could easily become depressed with that kind of a thought and turn into an Eeyore, you know, just kind of mope around all, nobody's going to remember us. But if we stray a little bit from the sermon text and cheat by looking ahead, we'll we'll actually uh, be reminded of a very biblical truth that God gives us enjoyment, even if it's temporary. Uh, If I, I close my Bible, give me a second to turn there, but if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter two, so in my Bible, that's just one page over to the right, Ecclesiastes 2.25, here's what Solomon writes. He says this. I'll start in verse 24, actually. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Do you get what he says there? He partially answers his question he asked at the beginning of chapter one. What advantage is there to hard work? What's the point of my toil? Well, the answer is joy, joy. It's the joy, though, that comes from simple experiences, food and drink, meaningful work. You know, the house I live in is eventually going to fall into the ground, but that doesn't mean I don't enjoy it now. I l- I'm glad to have it, right? I enjoy it. 50-degree um, days in December or January now, you know, they're, they're not going to be around forever, but I hope, like, you know, we're going to enjoy the day that the Lord has given us, right? It's still a very real thing. This is not Christian hedonism, but it's a thankful enjoyment of things that God gives us. us. Yes, they're temporary, but they're also very real and a blessing from the sovereign hand of God. You know, the enjoyment, for example, of a, a sip of fine bourbon, it doesn't last. It's in your mouth and it's gone. It's still real. The fun of playing games with my kids, it's not forever, but it's still real. Enjoyment is not something that we as Christians have to avoid. It's one of the greatest gifts that God gives to his children. In fact, even in our Presbyterianness, we know this, right? We know this question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You know, some of us may focus a little too much on the glorify part. <laughs> it's both. It's not one or the other. Our greatest enjoyment is, is centered on our triune God. It will always begin and end and flow through our existence and our being in our creator. That's what we're designed for. We will never find any true joy or satisfaction outside of that. We're supposed to delight in God and what he gives. You have good things in your life. Praise God for them. Thank the Lord for them and enjoy them. They're real blessings. He is the fountainhead of joy and the only source that provides lasting satisfaction. Our best life is not now, but let's not be so overcome with the transience of the world that we don't enjoy the blessing from God's hand. A good meal, time with friends, watching the sunset—you get the idea. I love the verse in First Timothy six seventeen, where we're told not to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's that verse again. There's that word again: enjoy. E- enjoy the blessings from God's hand. I do think that's a bit of the paradox, though the paradox of this enjoyment is that a person can only truly enjoy the blessings that God gives if we know and understand and accept that all of our earthly stuff is transient. Like, we can't actually truly enjoy what we have now without embracing and owning that reality. In fact, only a Christian really ever truly enjoys the stuff in his life because everybody else is trying to hold on to it. Everybody else, that's what they got. Like, This is it. Make the most of it. It's the old adage of he who dies with the most toys wins. You know, what a a load of garbage, right, to a Christian. Yeah, accepting the temporary nature of our material blessings is the key to enjoying them because it puts the things we have in their rightful place in the created order. They have a place, but they need to be in the right place. It reminds me a little bit of the infamous story of uh, J.D. Rockefeller who— if we adjust for inflation, had a net worth of like $350 billion. Just, you know, unfathomable amount of money. And one time he was asked by a reporter how much money is enough. uh, And his answer was just a little bit more. It's just, it's ridiculous to think of somebody with that amount of money even saying that. But if you're worried about losing your stuff or getting more of it, you don't have this perspective that the Kohalet, the preacher's describing in Ecclesiastes, it's going to rob you of an enjoyment for what God has provided for you. It will rob you of contentment. You know, if you start to think that you can keep what you have or that this is all there is, you, you're going to quickly lose your joy and your focus. But we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Again, 1 Timothy 6-7. A Christian, when, when asked how much money is enough, a Christian should answer by saying however much God provides. That's contentment. There's joy in that. Contentment in what God provides enables us to gratefully enjoy the gifts from his hand, even if the gifts are only here for a season. Enjoy what you have. So that's point two. They are the gifts from God. So the third application and the final one is this. Our significance comes from Christ. Our significance comes from Christ. Yes, nothing lasts. But we do get to enjoy the blessings that God provides. But let's make this one other observation in light of what redemptive history teaches us. Our works are significant and lasting because of Jesus. There is a significance and a lasting there. Notice again what verse 10 tells us. There's nothing new under the sun. But as redemptive history moves forward from Ecclesiastes on into the New Testament... We do see something that, while not new, is revealed to us, and that's Jesus, the Son of God. And in Christ, our works, our efforts, they produce fruit and results that are eternal. We know this from the analogy of the vine that is used in John 15, when it is written, if you, Christ says, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. There is an abiding fruit and a lasting result of our good works when we are attached to the true vine. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's that word again. Your work in the Lord is not in vain. We are to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Not to the, the labors of this earth that are here one day and gone the next. Yes, we work, but our work in the Lord, you, you don't have to hold anything back. No, no no, reserve. Go all in. Because it's not in vain. The good works, the things we do in service to, to, our, to our, our Lord Jesus, they're, they're not meaningless. They're not a breath. They're eternal. They're lasting. Ecclesiastes does tell us that And remind us that there's a a temporary, transient nature to this earth, but our labor in the Lord is not that way. Our labor at work, our home, our backyard, breath. Some value, but it's a breath. But our work in the Lord, our good works, they glorify God. We were created to do them, and they reap us heavenly rewards. You know, we don't talk about the heavenly rewards a lot in Presbyterian circles, and it's a tough one in some ways, I'll admit, But Scripture tells us that we get good works, or we get rewarded for our good works in the Lord. There's something to that. But that's actually part of the gospel message. You see, a gospel is a proclamation of a king and a kingdom. That's the gospel message. It's always centered around a king and a kingdom. And the good news is that there is a kingdom where things last. There is a kingdom where our works matter and that the fall is not touched. And this kingdom is coming into the world and that's our hope. That's, that's, that's the gospel message. That our good works, the things we do in the Lord are part of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what Hebrews tells us in 1228. Our good works and our efforts are part of that unshakable kingdom of our Lord Jesus. So do you want to be significant? I do. Do you want to be part of something that matters, not only in this life, but will echo into eternity? Then serve God and humbly follow Him. That's where it's found. No other place. Sure, we're engaged in all sorts of efforts and labor, and that's fine and well and has its place. But if you want to be part of something that is eternal and lasting and worthy, it will, it will be echoing into eternity. It is in service to the Lord. Be a faithful husband. Be a charitable neighbor. Be a loving parent. Teach your kids about God's grace. Serve at your church. Live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and holiness. These are charitable, good, right Christian things that we do that delight the Lord. You see, our small acts of charity towards God, or our small acts of charity towards others, those matter to God. Nobody else may see them, but your Heavenly Father does. Our unseen obedience to His Word, it matters. Our quiet service, maybe unnoticed by, by the world, it matters to God. He sees these things. They please Him and they have lasting value. Yeah, the truth is, your name, well, I can only speak for myself, my name will never be put in lights. I'm never going to be in a magazine. I'm never going to be a famous person. Uh, I'm really okay with that, but I'm going to, and you're going to, likely die an obscure person in history with little remembrance on this earth. Most of us can't remember our great-grandparents' names, and let alone someone we're not related to. That's a heavy thing. It's true. Years ago, I remember visiting the house I grew up in. And I remember as a kid, my dad spent a lot of time trimming the bushes, putting flowers, mulch, just getting it to look nice. And uh, building a swing set, fence, all those things. You know, just, just spending a lot of labor there. But I remember we drove by the house. It was really sad because, you know, several owners later, all that work was undone. It was weeds, the fence was tore up, and the glory that was once our yard was gone. And that's life, right? And anyone who tells you otherwise is probably trying to sell you something. And I make no apologies for pointing out the reality of this existence because Ecclesiastes doesn't either. I want you to feel how bleak it is to live a life that has no lasting memory or legacy because that's all the world has to offer. Like if we don't see how dark and depressing that is, we don't see the light, of the gospel shining as bright as it does. Friends, we have the light of the gospel. We have an existence that is not bleak, not meaningless. We have an existence that is lasting, and it is lasting because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the difference between the world and the hope of the gospel. There's a man named J.R. Miller. He wrote a little book called Things to Live For, and I love this quote he says. He writes, There is an invisible sphere in which values are not rated in dollars and cents, but by the spiritual and eternal character of your life in Christ. That's what we have. We have an eternal character of value that lasts in Christ. We're supposed to just let go of the earthly stuff, let it be how it is, and with both hands grab onto our Savior and our significance in Him. You see, there is an eternal realm where our lives have value, and remembrance where our work lasts and is never in vain there is we may have no real significance in this world we may have no riches we may have little comfort but our life our significance and our value are found with christ in his unshakable kingdom for the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of god abides forever let us pray Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider your word this morning, I pray that it would go deep into our hearts. May we live for you and for your kingdom and for the uh, the eternal worth we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.